0: Not more, Tassa, Pacawato, arahato Summa, some Buddha sap. Not more, Tassa, Pacawato, Adahato, Summa, some Tassa, Pacawato, Adahato, Summa, some Buddha sap. But continuing this uh, Dhamma talk of Lumpur Somatoes, entitled Knowing Not Knowing and uh, this was given in August of 2003 and uh, he began the talk by mentioning that someone in the, the group, this is at the Leicester Summer School, uh, that their father-in-law had uh, died that morning. So that the theme of the, the talk was around uh, death and uh, the um, uh, aspects of uh, of dying, relating to death, deathlessness and uh, <coughs> the um, physical death, psychological death and those, uh, those areas. At this moment, right now, just trust in being aware and awake. It's not a question of trying to become someone who's aware and awake. It isn't a matter of thinking, oh, Ajahn samhita says I should be aware and awake, and I'm trying to do that. In that case, you would have missed it. That would be your ego grasping it and saying, I'm trying to become an awakened being. And that kind of perception would be coming out of ignorance. Trusting in this awareness, however, is an imminent act of simple recognition, of attention in the present. It is like this, and it's like nothing. It doesn't have any quality to it. It isn't blue, green, red, or any other color is isn't square, triangular or round. But it's real. It is reality. Then the conditions come from there. If you trust in this awareness, you can be aware of the ego arising. I think this and I don't like that. I want this and I don't want that. The perception of death arises and you can see emotionally, maybe, that it is frightening. Oh, I don't want to think about it or you wonder what it is, or somebody dies and you wonder what has happened to them. But, if you trust in awareness in the present, then you have perspective on the conditioning around perceptions and emotional habits that arise. One uh, very interesting experience um, uh, was quite impactful for me was um, the uh, the first person who died uh, here at Amravati, if I remember correctly, was a a Thai uh, woman who had been a a nun, an eight-precept nun in our community, twice over, um, called Dasaniyya. She came from a Muslim family, (coughs) and um, so her parents were were okay with her being around Buddhists, but um, uh, they were uh, not very keen on her joining the community. But uh, early on, in the early 80s, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer, and so... um, the, she managed to persuade her family, well, if I'm going to die, then can I'd you know, really like to die as a Buddhist nun. And so um, they, uh, they agreed with that. And so then she um, uh, shaved her head and joined the community. It was an Anagari car with us at Chithurst. And then uh, she recovered. And uh, amazingly enough, her family said, well, if you're not going to die, we don't want you in robes. So you've got to. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So she said, well, okay, she was a good daughter. And, uh, you yeah, know, very independent, strong person, but she said, okay, that's what you want. So then she uh, left the community and then lived um, by herself in a little flat in London. And then a few years later, the cancer came back. And once again, she said to her family, <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, she came here and uh, we are, and uh, Lumpur Sumedho invited her to come and end her days here at, at Amravati. And so... Uh, she was in the in the Nuns' Sihara during this time, and um, she was uh, uh, she faded quite slowly, and so it was quite a long period, many weeks, months that um, we would go and sit with her, and um, uh, as her her energies were were steadily fading, and there was many times where we we thought she was about to go, and then she would rally, and then uh, and would recover, and, and then we thought she was about to go, and all her friends would come around, and, and she'd recover. So there was there were several times that, that that had happened over the those final weeks of, of her life. Um, anyway, it was uh, during a, a winter retreat when uh, Lumpur Sumato was away that that uh, that year, and um, I was here um, with uh, uh, I think Ajahn Sujito was the, the sort of uh, the main uh, teacher and senior monk at that time, and uh, it had been another occasion where we thought she was about to go, and all her friends had come in and spent time with her during the day, and then. And then she'd rallied, and so that the, uh, so about eight or nine in the evening, then the fr- the, f- the friends had <coughs> had uh, taken off. But she, she really was uh, very very weak. So we and that during that time we were carrying on a vigil in her room. So there'd always be some of the monks or nuns uh, in her uh, her room, sort of day and night, just sort of meditating with her. And uh, the night that she passed away, uh, it was about one in the morning, and uh, myself Ajahn Chandapalo Palo were in the the room with her and. Uh, Sister uh, Chittapala, not the current Chittapala, the previous Chittapala, the Swiss Chittapala, was with her, and I think um, Sister Jyotika was there as well. So the four of us were there with with Dasuniya, and Chittapala was holding her, and her breath was getting uh, softer and softer and softer, and uh, it was that kind of like one in the morning, and you know we'd all been uh, not sleeping very much and just been doing a, a lot of uh, meditation, and uh, the um, the even though that we were physically quite tired um, there was a, a very sort of strong energy uh, uh, around her and, around in, and in the room and so it was a that mixture of like being in the middle of an all-night sitting of both kind of awake and kind of uh drifty uh, in terms of, of focus and uh, anyway so um uh, her breath was getting softer and softer and softer and then there came a certain moment where um Chittipala said she's gone And uh, at that moment, um, you know, so sitting there meditating and just hearing the sound of her breathing, and then also the the nada sound, the the uh, the sound of silence being extremely strong, then there was this very clear recognition uh, in a in a a weirdly intuitive and sort of obvious way. It's like the mind knows the body alive, the mind knows the body dead. How could that be different? And how could this mind knowing the body alive and the, and the body dying, be any different from anybody else in the room, including Dasanir, knowing here's the body alive, here's the body dead. And it was uh, and it was, uh, the most striking thing was that nothing happened. So part of it was like, oh, you, you know, when someone dies, you think, oh, there's going to be like a, the wind of death comes through the room, or the curtains will rustle, or they'll be going kind to of, you know some kind of um, thing that happens. But on the uh, on the perceptual level, no thing happened. But what did happen was that sense of uh, of a, a kind of inner certainty of like, well, of course, the mind that knows this mind that's aware of Dassania's body breathing and then not breathing, how could that be different from her mind knowing the body breathing and then the body not breathing? And it, it, in that moment, it doesn't sound particularly rational, especially if you're a a materialist. <laughs> And they think, well no, when the body stops breathing, then you, that's it. you switch off. But there was a, a weird kind of obviousness. It's like, of course, how could it be otherwise that's uh, this awareness of uh, of a of a change in nature, like the, the 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 wind moving through the branches of a tree, or you know the breath coming and going, uh, you know that which knows the breath coming and going isn't coming and going, that which knows the, the wind blowing through the trees is, isn't moving, and so in that moment it was completely clear that yeah there's a body breathing there's a body, not breathing. Um, nothing happened you know, that uh, the uh, the awareness um, was on an intuitive level it was really clear that um, as it were nobody died <laughs> no, no, no thing really happened there was just an awareness of, of changes uh, occurring in the perceptual field so that was a, a time of a, of, a, of a powerful insight uh, and uh, the um the way that my mind tended to view view death and f- and physical death was was quite changed by that because it was a such a non conceptual uh, and uh, a, uh, intuitive experience. It wasn't wasn't something coming from a reason or an explanation or a, or you know even non talking about it. It was just right there. You're in the room and oh well uh, and that sense of a wordless knowing or a wordless understanding that. Uh, it's, it's not coming from a conceptual position or an, uh, an, uh, an opinion or an, or an ideology. It's just, oh, well, of course. You know, how could it be otherwise? And almost being surprised by the obviousness of that or the, the naturalness of that. Some of you might have had completely different experiences. But that was, that was actually the first time I'd been close to somebody when they died, you know, in the same room. and um, then, uh, But I've been with other people when he died, quite a few since then, um, but that was uh, the, the the first time that I had been, and it was, and so it was the, that sense of absolutely no sadness or no sense of loss, like, well, what was lost? It's like, you know, when a, autumn comes and a leaf f- falls off a tree, well, it's autumn, so the, the leaves go brown and they fall off a tree, so there's not, what, what's wrong with that? What, what's there to be sad about? Nothing, there's nothing that's, uh, Uh, even unpleasant or painful. So to continue. Now, is this the deathless? Is it as simple as that? My intellectual mind says, well, the deathless is very abstract and very difficult to understand. And can you prove it? What do the scientists say? What does the Dalai Lama say? What do all the authorities say? The point is, Maybe we are afraid to trust the reality because the ego will come up and try to shake us. So this is where I keep reiterating and emphasizing this sense of trusting the awareness. Begin to recognize awareness as a natural state. It's very simple and uncomplicated. It is sustainable because it isn't created. It doesn't depend on conditions to hold it together, which is why it is sustainable. If you create conditions that make you feel tranquil, when those conditions drop away, you're confused again, you're agitated again. Refined states are dependent on controlling conditions. In recognizing the world the way it is, we can see that having a human body is not very helpful to tranquility, if you've you've noticed. These are terribly restless and sensitive formations, so you realize what a job it is, what hard work it is to be human to be living in one of these forms for a lifetime. We struggle so much with it because we're in a constant state of sensitivity and never get out of it. And that sensitivity doesn't mean happy sensitivity. A lot of it is just very unpleasant. We try to control it by having beautiful things around us and so on. But after living in this beautiful place for a week, you go back through some slummy part of London and can't bear to look. Hurts your eyes to see the ugly side of life. This sense realm includes pain, disease, old age, sickness, loss, lamentation, and grief. They're all part of the human experience. The Buddha was pointing to these as the very things we're always trying to control and get away from. We reason that if we could control everything, we would be in heaven. We would feel happy and safe. Everything would be beautiful, and we'd never have to experience unpleasant sensory impingement ever again. But that is impossible. Knowing the world as the world means that you're fully aware of the existential reality of being a human being. A conscious human being is like this. In this way, we can bear it. It's endurable. Being in a human form, male or female, and having this sensitivity can be endured. It's bearable stuff. Even the pain and sickness, the old age and the loss of loved ones, are endurable conditions, because that's part of our human karma. As human beings, we share that. It's also uh, interesting in that respect, um, uh, in, in in Thailand, just as uh, we do here in uh, in the West, or in other countries around the world, when people say, you know, how are you? Then we usually say, I- I'm fine, or I'm happy, or I'm comfortable. Or, oh, how are you? And uh, you say, oh, I'm fine, how are you? And um, <clears throat> so, uh, the way uh, so in, Th- in the Thai language, people say "sabai di mai." You know, are you well? sabai di, cup. Yes, I'm well. So when uh, when people would ask "lumpo cha," "sabai di mai," you know, are you well? He wouldn't say "sabai di." You know, I'm I'm very well. But he'd say "por ton dai," which means it's endurable, <laughs> or "di por di," good enough, good, or "por chai dai," yeah, enough, uh, good enough to get by. And so sometimes people say, Oh, what's wrong? You know? <laughs> but he was somehow he was expressing some kind of uh, complaint or, or illness. And, uh, but he is, then when he would talk about it, he'd say, Well, people say they're Sabai, but they're not really Sabai at all. You know, They've got all kinds of difficulties and problems, but they say, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so he's just, um, when people say, uh, Ask me how I am, and I say, It's endurable, I'm just being realistic. You know? It's not a complaint or, or any, talking about any particular. Problem or illness? It's just, yeah, it's like this. So uh, I I adopt a similar um, approach, and so when people ask me this uh, you know, today and other days, people say, "How are you?" and I just say, "Like this." <laughs> <laughs> then I leave leave the people to fill in the blanks. And they can. I don't know, I don't know what I look like from the outside, but you know. So it's up to people to make their own impression. The, I say, oh, really. Yeah. You know, however, it might be. But uh, I feel that in the spirit of Lumpo Chos' expression, that, yeah, well, it's like this. Here it is. <laughs> this, this is uh, this is what it's like. And then uh, that way, we're being we're not sort of um, pasting onto the surface that sense of as uh, as Lhundrup is saying here that um, yeah. <clears throat> that uh, uh, we re- if we could control everything, we'd be in heaven, we'd be happy and safe, everything would be beautiful. we would never have to experience unpleasant sensory impingement. So that sense of, I'm fine, I'm fine, fine. You know, we're not fine at all. You know. And uh, in, in the States, they have, uh, they, um, uh, they, when they're relating or talking about this area, they say that uh, the, actually the word fine is an acronym for fed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> I'm fine. Which is another way of looking at it. (laughs) What is unbearable is what we create. At least, this is what I have found. What I can't stand, what I really hate, are the resentments and fears I myself create in life. As soon as something starts hurting, I want to get rid of it. I want to get away from it. If I get sick... I want to be rid of the sickness immediately. If somebody upsets me, I want to get away from that person immediately. I don't want to be upset. I want to feel happy. If I'm feeling threatened and insecure, I try to find a place where I feel secure and safe. I create this desire for sense pleasure. Because of that, I fear and resent it when sense experience is ugly, unpleasant, painful. I desire to be happy and to live in a realm of love, safety and beauty and I would like to go to heaven and be in a blissful state forever. But then I get caught up in things that prevent that. The irritations of life, the little problems that monks come up with, the petty little things that go on in monasteries, the endless committee meetings where you spend hours discussing trivialities and you think, I didn't ordain for this, I ordained for Nibbana. I want to get rid of all this silliness, all these ridiculous things, all this foolishness, just get me out of here, all in capitals. With an exclamation mark. at the end, Just get me out of here! And I have this kind of thing going on. I want to go off and be a hermit in a cave. I'm going to leave Amravati and go and live in the Himalayas. Find a cave. Leave all this behind. I don't want this anymore. I want to get rid of it. And emotionally, I also want to get rid of my anger. I'm ashamed of my anger and I want to get rid of that too. I don't want to feel these foolish emotions because I'm idealistic. I want to be a pure-hearted bhikkhu like the Buddha. And you've got these dirty thoughts. You feel ashamed of yourself, and there is a the desire to get rid of it all. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, still, still true about the committees. Abbotship <laughs> of Amaravati involves a lot of committee meetings. I'm on about, I, I've lost count now, but it's somewhere between 12 and 15 different committees that I, I'm part of. So I spend a lot of time reading agendas and minutes, and uh, proofreading, <laughs> proofreading uh, bureaucratic documents. But that's okay, uh, you know. If you are <coughs> the what Lumpur's made is talking about here is how the mind creates this the sense of if I didn't have this, then I would be happy. Uh, if only I didn't have to bother with this uh, this particular thing, then then I'll be happy. And if uh, <coughs> that uh, this thing is in my way, this person, this meeting, this this responsibility, and if there wasn't this, then everything would be great. This sort of childlike. Um, a uh, longing for heaven, this place where your everything is pretty and you're you're happy all of the time, and and everything is is fun and enjoyable and good you know, en- endlessly, um, which is a is a, a childlike mentality, and uh, what but he's he's sketching that out, and then pointing out how the more the mind buys into that, then every place where you are, you're cu- in that, you're creating the causes for for, for dukkha. Yeah, by thinking that's the good thing—the sort of imagined paradise where nobody bothers me and everybody likes me and nobody ever upsets me—then um, <clears throat> that that is creating the causes for dukkha, for dissatisfaction with this. Yeah. And uh, as a uh, Cha who's a a, a, a genius at, at phrasing things in very clear and simple ways, he uh, one of the, the ways he he would speak about this, he, he'd say. Um, Everybody wants happiness, but nobody likes to create the causes of happiness. Nobody wants suffering, but everyone likes to create the causes of suffering. So it's interesting to sit on for a week or two. (laughs) Everybody wants happiness, but people don't like to create the causes for happiness. Nobody wants suffering, but people love to create the causes of suffering. So in this respect, this kind of buying into this idea of, if only I was younger, if only I was more healthy, if only I was... Smaller or bigger. If only I was cleverer or more artistic or more uh, <clears throat> more patient. If only I was. I didn't have this and I had that. Then everything would be great. In that moment, you're creating the causes for suffering by by, by say investing in that that idea. <coughs> the, the creating the causes of happiness is uh, the the capacity of mind to be patient with all. Oh, this is the um, being with an unpleasant feeling. This is being being with a headache, or being with a, uh, a demanding situation. This is where uh, this is what it feels like. This is what being hot feels like. This is what feel being cold feels like. So that that's how we create the causes for happiness. Is through that sense of openness and patience, the, the openness of heart, ready to to be with the way things are. So over and over again, Lumbasamayi is saying, you know, it's this way. <laughs> So if you're really hot, like he's talking about the other places, talking about being in India, you know being in Varanasi, and uh, I was talking the other day about the little thermometer on my clock, reaching 137 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, and then just going into spasm. 137. It couldn't, it couldn't go any higher. It's sort of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of blinking on and off,' gasping in the heat. Anyway, it's 137 degrees. You feel it. There, there is no cool place. Even sitting in front of a fan, it's blasting hot air at you. <laughs> there's no cool place. So that you, uh, to create the causes of happiness, is in that moment to recognize: this is what heat feels like. This is Varanasi in the hot season. It's this way. You're not pretending that you like it. You're not making it feel cool. That there's the, the 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 heart is open to the fact that right now the sensory world is. Exactly this way. So that's when, when we talk about knowing the world, or the lokovitu, the quality of the Buddha, it's that it's exactly that, that, that sense of knowing the world. this is the world. And at the moment, the world of feeling, of sensation is dominant, you know, it's 137 degrees.. It's unimaginably hot, and it feels like this. And so that that uh, knowing the world. Is what helps the heart to transcend the world. In fact, like the the Buddha said, "It's um, <clears throat> yeah. Unless you get to the end of the world, you won't get to the end of dukkha. But you can't get to the end of the world by walking. But it's really in this body and this mind, with its perceptions and its thoughts. There is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. And then he goes on to explain. So, what is the world? Well, when we use the word the world, the loka, what is that?" He so, said. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. That is the world. Uh, And that um, in a very uh, uh, significant short teaching that he gives, that I quote quite often, he says, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is the world. That is the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So the world that we experience is not the world. It's our minds version of the world that's what we experience each one of us we think that we're we're experiencing amravati you're not you're experiencing your mind's (laughs) representation. so so then you can start to speculate well is there really an amravati here or is it still my imagination well there is a basis uh, in the material world for these perceptions but each one of us can only know our minds uh, version of that, the way it pieces together a particular image, whether uh, uh, whether we are uh, older or younger, whether we uh, have English as our first language, or French, or, or Chinese, or Sri Lankan, or German, or Cro- uh, Serbo-Croat, or Japanese, or <laughs> all the many, many languages gathered here. Our, our education, our family background, uh each one of us has a mind that is creating a filter, and we can't know a world that's free of that filter. That's the only world we can know, and that's what the, the Buddha uh, pointed that out in that teaching. That's the world. You can't so meaningfully speculate about what is the world like without that filter, uh, because there is this, this, this body, this mind. The world is known through the agency of this life, but. Uh, the, the fact is that if the world can be known, oh, this is just my mind's representation of how things are, it can only be a partial truth, it's not the truth, then one of the, the, the effects of that is that then it helps us to harmonize with each other because we recognize, of course, how could this version of the world be the same as that? So Emmeline's version of reality has to be different from mine because she's looking that way and I'm looking this way. So it's different. I can't see the white Buddha image on the shrine behind me, I'm assuming it's still there. It was there when I bowed a few minutes ago, but it might be gone. But you know, Emmeline is sitting right in front of me, she's, she's looking that way, I'm looking this way. So you know, just on that level, our version of the world is, a, is different. So when we uh, acknowledge that and work from that basis, then it's no surprise that people see things differently. People have different opinions, people have a different world. They are, they are actually in a different world. So then we find we're able to be more compassionate with each other. We can make more space for each other. Because, of course, when I say, that's beautiful, and someone says, oh, really, you like that? Then the, the first thought is, well, of course, in my version of the world, I call that beautiful. Why should somebody else see the same thing? Of course. So then we make space for each other. We are more accommodating and able to work with each other. And so that then the uh, the the uh, say, uh, the guidance for for our life then is the precepts, you know, five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, uh, you know, the the uh, the training we have as monastics. Then that's what ke- creates a, a format for living skillfully, but uh, within that 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 creates a, a solid boundary, a solid crucible, a kind of container for our lives. But within that, then uh, that standard of the precepts, then we can I say make a lot of space for each other, make allowance for each other, and everyone having different opinions and perspectives. That make sense. So, it's a short teaching, it's a, uh, and uh, yeah, I've memorized it because it's. Uh, I feel it's so useful. If you want to look it up, it's connected to the the the, the teaching that the Buddha gave to Rohitasa of when this uh, deva asked. Uh, uh, how to get to the end of the world. So those, the the two suttas are connected with each other. But this one about the nature of the world is um, in the, um, uh, the Salayatana Sanghita, the connected discourses about the Six Senses, which is section 35 of the Sanghita, and it's Sutta 116. But don't be too impressed, because I couldn't tell you what 115 and 117 are, but I do know that one. So it's Sanghita 35, Sutta 116. and sixteen, uh, and just that little teaching on its own is, uh, it makes an immense difference in terms of how we relate to our experience, how we relate to our perceptions and to the, the people that we live with. So to continue. But in reflecting on the way things are, you realize, as the Buddha pointed out, that it is identifying with desire that's the problem. So then, your relationship to desire changes and you're willing to see the desire for sense pleasure, the desire to get rid of pain, the desire to become this beautiful, blissful, saintly being, and it is like this. Desire for achievement and attainment through meditation is one of the problems people have. One of the blocks is the desire for attaining states and achieving nibbāna, or getting away from negative mental states. Awareness then allows these things. If they arise, they belong. That's how I see it. If bad thoughts arise, they belong. My relationship to them is no longer one of, I don't want you, but of realizing that if these are what are coming up now in my consciousness, then they belong. I might not like them, but they belong. So I don't add anything to them. And if I try to get rid of bad thoughts, I create aversion as well as a desire to get rid of them. If an angry impression arises in me and I start dwelling on it, I attach to that, get more and more angry fall back into the habit of finding somebody to blame for the anger, and then start resenting them. I used to go to India every six months. It's such an interesting country, and has incredible beauty as well as incredible ugliness. It isn't a tidy country like this one. There's a lot to feel averse to, and a lot you might be attracted by. So for a meditator, it's a very interesting place to be. (laughs) Just for observing how the conditioned mind reacts to it. You go through these narrow lanes in Benares. It's cold and you've just arrived. Your personality says, they should keep these cows out of this lane. These lanes are too narrow. They shouldn't allow cows just to wander in these lanes. Now that just seems like common sense. And they throw their rubbish in the lanes too. They should have rubbish bins set there, because I'm a very tidy person. And these motorcyclists come by. They're very aggressive. Get an Indian on a motorcycle and he thinks he's Lord Krishna riding his chariot. They shouldn't allow motorcycles in these narrow lanes. The voice goes on and on like that. I'm going to clean up Benares. That's a joke. But after a couple of weeks, you just let it all go. And after two months, you don't mind any of it. You find yourself manoeuvring round the hind end of a cow in a narrow lane without finding it in the least bit onerous. Because it's just part of daily life there. And it is endurable. It's bearable. It, is some, it isn't something I can't bear. What I can't actually bear is that every time I see a cow in a narrow lane, I go into, it shouldn't be like this. That sense of, I can't stand it. It shouldn't be this way, is what I find unbearable. And I create that. I can't blame it on anybody else. I am the creator of that feeling. The point is to get to know the way things are, in their good, bad, and neutral aspects, and to realize that what we want them to be is additional. Realize that we add the criticism and the reactions to the world and the environment around us. The realization comes from this point of awareness. Death, then, is the door to the deathless. This is a reflection, not a doctrine. And wherever you really trust in awakenedness, a part of you, your ego, dies every time. I'll read that again. So death, then, is the door to the deathless. This is a reflection, not a doctrine. And whenever you really trust in awakenedness, a part of you, Your ego dies every time. That is one of the reasons there's a lot of resistance to being fully aware. Because in a way, you are dying. Your ego is dying. Ego is conditioned through ignorance. It wants to live. It wants to perpetuate itself. That's how it is. It is a desire. So when your relationship to the ego comes from the deathless awareness, you begin to have perspective on what arises and ceases in consciousness every moment. Feelings, thoughts, memories, and the physical side. This awareness includes everything. It's not the same as thinking, which is linear. and can only generate one thought at a time. Awareness is unitive, whereas thinking is divisive. By not attaching to thought, you recognize that your true nature is not something that you can define. You cannot define yourself as anything. You cannot find yourself. You are no thing. At the same time, however, Awareness is pure, intelligent, and wise. So this is what I recommend. Sorry, this is, so this is what I recommend. You put your faith into. To me, refuge in the Buddha Dhamma, sangha means this. What I'm saying is, you're not really going to die. But when uh, he uses this phrase, "you are no thing," again, that might to the ego that might sound sound uh, uh, destructive or, or nihilistic, but it's also uh, one of the ways that the Buddha talked about nibbana, in, uh, when he was describing it as the island, he said, "You know, there's this island that you cannot go beyond. It is a, a place of non-possession, anadana. It is a place of no thingness, akincana. So that no thingness is like the when the mind creates a thing, like a book or a person or a place or a clock or a me, then." that is a, a, a sort of a false attribution. It's, it's, it's being imputed, that thingness, that solidity, is being say imputed or given to, added on to that set of experiences. In itself, there's a set of, of colors and forms and sounds arising and passing away. There, is, there isn't a clock, there is clocking. There isn't a book, there is booking. There isn't a person, there is personing. So uh, to call a, a thing as a sort of permanent object uh is to miss that fluid and and so that uh in yeah it's interesting that in some languages they don't even have nouns that they that they you can't talk about uh a, an object as a permanent thing but they only have verbs and adverbs uh, ways of, of describing that uh, uh, the the um, experiential reality and so that um that uh uh, that dynamic of, say, of no-thingness or being no-thing, to notice that, that, uh, that the kind of, but I'm, well, I want to be alive, I want to be someone, I want to, I want to feel, I want to be, I want to do, and, and we take that as somehow an intrinsic good. And uh, uh, again, not to, to um, uh, overemphasize things in, uh, for the West, people in the West uh, or, or in the USA, um, but that, that sense of being interested, and being excited um, is taken as an intrinsic good, and L- Lumpur talks a bit more about that as we go on. but um, that it's, it's really striking how, when people say, "Oh, that's exciting. You know, oh, that's interesting." and it means, therefore good. That to be excited is good. To be not excited is not good. And that, uh, that we are, uh, as a culture, we feed on that sense of becoming, of Bhava Tanha, of uh, that sense of defined being. And when the Buddha was first enlightened, it's really interesting, this sort of internal reflections that he makes and recounted there in the teachings, how he said that after his enlightenment his first inclination was not to try to teach, because he, he's, and his observation was this whole world is uh, dependent on becoming, on, on existence. It's depend- it, it relies on it, it's addicted to that, it only knows that, it relishes that. But what it relishes brings pain. So the whole world is addicted to becoming, to the sense of, I, yes, good, what, do. That Defined being that is like a, a drug that the whole human world, or the whole world is, is addicted to. And the Buddha's Awakening is almost like the only person who's, the only non-addict in real, realizing he's living in an entire global society of addicts. Yeah. I'm the only one who's got off the stuff. <laughs> where do you start? And so his first inclination after his enlightenment was that's like, you know, if you went to, to go and work in a town in, a, in a, an addiction clinic and you realize that the million people living in, uh, in the town, uh, or say so nine million people living in London, there are nine million addicts and one non-addict, and you've got the job. So just like the Buddha, you think, I think I'll go to the Himalayas and find a cave and and that uh, so his mind was inclined towards inaction, to, to to not trying to teach. And then, as we do with the request for the Dhamma talk, this is the, the um, recounting of the story of the Brahma deity Sahampati, picking up that that thought in the Buddha's mind and saying, "Oh no, oh no!" You know, the the Buddha, the the mind of the newly awakened Buddha is inclined towards uh, uh, not teaching and to towards seclusion. So, so then sampati. Beams down from the Brahma world and appears in front of the Buddha and said, Please, for the sake of those with a little, just a little dust in their eyes, please teach the Dhamma that you understand. And then, as the story goes, the Buddha looked around the world and said, Well, yeah, you're right, actually. There are some beings that are really dense and, and lost, and others who've not so lost. It. There are some beings with, with dense faculties and heavily deluded, and others that are not so deluded. They just have a little bit of dust in their eyes. So on that appeal from Sahampati, then that the Buddha began to teach and we are the grateful recipients of Sahampati's appeal so uh, Whether exactly how that took shape is impossible to say I would uh, venture but uh, uh, that motivation in the heart of the Buddha we are the, the very uh, Grateful recipients of that motivation that he then chose uh, chose to teach but the uh, that experience of seeing you know, surrounded by people committed to that sense of being, relishing that sense of identity, defined being, and how hard it is to, to break break free from that. So there's it's a fear of death, and it's like when someone is is told that they're not wanted on the committee anymore, or someone has been invited to leave the board of directors because they you know they, they might have founded the company, but it's time to hand it over. It's like you can't you can't get rid of me. Yet. Or that you say someone is the abbot of the monastery. It's time for them to step down. Or, you know, what do you mean? You know, I'm the abbot. You know. And so that then, that uh, I'm not making any predictions or talking about anybody in particular, but this is a very common condition. Or someone who's been a, a, a prime minister or a dictator, when the, the tanks surround the palace and say, <clears throat> you know, we, uh, we're, we're looking for a new government here. And then the, the, that, the tyrant doesn't want to step down from that role. That's like uh, Ajahn Sajito's little, very good little uh, Dhamma book called Unseating the Inner Tyrant. It's about that. And you might think that, well, that's talking about other people. <laughs> but uh, how many of us have been in that, where we're, we're told, uh, we, you don't need any help in the kitchen, yeah, we're doing fine without you. you know, what do you mean? You know? I can cook. Yeah. And that we, we don't want to be pushed away. We don't want to be t- told that we're, we're not necessary or we're useless or that uh, um, that uh, we're not appreciated or we're not wanted. And so that then, that, that right there, there's that feeling of, of egotism is, is revealed. And so that uh, we, as a, as a human family, we, we love that affirmation. We love that sense of defined being An undefined being is experienced as as death. So we we've uh, been having the winter retreat and uh, many many hours of meditation, solitary meditation, group meditation. And uh, again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, and I, uh, and for uh, just out of generally the general experience, it's very common in meditation where you've your 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 mind is quite peaceful. You're letting go of, uh, of of everything, and the mind starts to hunt for something to to get identified with us, give, give me something, give me, give me a plan, give me, a, a, give me a, some nostalgia, give me a problem, give me, give me something, and it'll, it'll be kind of like going through the attic, kind of emptying all the boxes, trying to find something to be, like I've got a, a, a problem or a regret or a plan or a, a passion or a, a resentment or something, just give me something, and it doesn't care what, it's totally shameless, it, anything will do. You know, it's it's uh, it's amazing how the um, you know, and it's and often in meditation it's it's at those times you can see that, that sort of shameless and false quality of it because it's just like it's ridiculous. I remember one time when I was at a three month retreat in the forest at Chihurst and um and I would get, go and uh, and uh, in those days, we only had one kuti, <laughs> so it's got to take it in turns to be in the forest uh, uh, and so um, I would often go out and sit uh, just put a, a sitting mat down and sit by the lake and and uh, one day I, I sat there for about five hours, and uh, my mind was was uh, finding things to complain about you know just one after another after another and I kept basically I was sat there for five hours saying, "No, no, 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 no so it was all these different a huge variety of different things to be averse to, negative about. And then it was almost like a, a, a switch got turned and said, okay, well, that's not working. Let's try sexual fantasy instead. And he went from complaining to fantasizing, just, just like uh, it's like a, moving out of one, one, room in the, uh, one, one film in a the movie theater to a, another. It's like, what? It was so ridiculous. I actually burst out laughing. I thought, come on. This is this absurd. You know, four and a half hours of that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and what about that, and that's wrong, this kind of solid aversion. You can almost hear this inner voice saying, Phew, well, that's a dead end, let's try this one instead. It was, so, it was such, so kind of shameless and so superficial. It's like, you're joking. How am I supposed to, you know, that's not going to work. And uh, so that's really helpful as a useful insight. You can see it's, it's completely false, the things that we get worried about and frightened about. Also, one thing that you can notice is that where the mind is doing that kind of scanning and hunting for a thing to, to be identified with, a thing to be worried about, a thing to want, a thing to hate, a thing to be, uh, have an opinion about, and then if you keep sort of saying, no, 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 and it keeps looking, and then, then it will find something like, oh, actually, yeah, I have got to talk to her about that, <laughs> my sister, and then, oh, yeah, she, uh, she was really upset. And then, then with that kind of recognition of, oh yeah, there is that one, then there's this kind of, yes, got one! It's like fishing, you know, you finally got a bite, you had your hook in the water for three hours and finally you got a bite. You know, there's a, finally a fish bit on, your, on the bait. And, and uh, again, that, that can be really revealing. It's like, you're happy that you've got a thing to be a problem about and uh and so that, that seeing that kind of uh sh- that false that kind of shameless quality to it and the sense of identity and identity that it gives uh, i was talking with um with uh, uh a couple of conversations i've had over the years uh, on this area are uh, really uh, really useful where um somebody was uh, they they had had this um uh, experience of uh, they were uh, they had uh, been um, sent to to Vietnam as a soldier and had been scarred, uh, kind of very badly disfigured, um, and uh, you know Richard Nixon was was uh, had been the, the the president at the time and uh, and uh, had sort of sent this whole uh, you know this whole batch of soldiers. So this person was was very badly disfigured, and and Nixon was to blame. And, uh, and yet they could recognize, and they also they used to wear a Richard Nixon mask over his face just when he was in protest marches and things, and incredibly resentful, and said, yeah, the problem is that I've got an absolutely uh, uh, you know, 100% reliable excuse. You know, I've got something to blame for my problems, and I see that's a weakness. Because uh, you know, it's, it's so easy for me to say, he's to blame. And this is this is my this is my suffering, but I know that it's not, and that's a tremendous wisdom. because it's like, yeah, this is this fixed, um, it's it's unrequitable, and seeing that that's always going to give me an excuse to hate, and I can build my identity around that thing that I hate. He said, I know, it, but I know it's more than that. I, I know that's that's uh, that doesn't have to be who and what I am, but it's it's. Um, so attractive—it's so, it's such a a, uh, like a perfect excuse. It's uh, uh, something that's broken that can't be fixed. So I, I've got a perfect uh, target for my blame. It's been, uh, is that all that I am? This this thing that hates Richard Nixon—is you know, that—is that all I have to be? You know, is that all I can do with my life? And I, I thought it was tremendous wisdom to to uh, to see in that way. Another another story, other end of the spectrum, where um, <coughs> back in the um, early nineties, we had a a, a, a man who came came to join the community from the states, and um, <coughs> he'd uh, he'd been living in, in New York City, and, and he'd arrived, and just um, before he'd uh, 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 just before he'd come, he started getting quite ill, and then. He came here and took the eight precepts as an anagarica, and then he was diagnosed as having HIV, and this was before the era when there were when there were drugs that could uh, could treat it, um, and so that um, <coughs> so this was this this big thing in his life. You know, he was here to 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 train, be part of the community, and he'd been diagnosed as uh, as HIV positive. So there was this clinic in London that he'd go to uh, on a regular basis, and uh, and. Um, so during the time that he was here, over the, the, these these months, you know, I got to know him quite well. I was um, helping to, to look after the, the novices and the Garricas. and um, and then one day I was the, the guest at tea time here in the, the, the reception room, and uh, and I saw him arriving back, sort of coming back from London, and he and he came back, he came into the group and sort of sat down in a chair at the back and looking you know, really glum and kind of, kind of sallow and grey and. I thought, oh dear, I must have had some really bad news, you know, poor guy, something you know, its really tragic. And uh, so I, anyway, uh, at the end of the tea time, I waited for everybody else to leave, and I said, so uh, what's the news from, from the clinic, you know, you, you look pretty unhappy. And he said, yeah, I am unhappy, I'm, I'm really unhappy. And then he really surprised me because he said, I lost my story. what do you mean, he said, I'm not HIV positive i have an immune disease but it's not i'm not going to die of it so i just lost my story yeah you know, i was just getting ready for this heroic death <laughs> and and i've lost it i said i've got an immune disease that'll mean i have a kind of runny nose <laughs> and a headache for much of my life there's not but uh, that's it you know i'm not going to get any sympathy for having a runny nose for 40 years am i <laughs> Yeah, and it was amazing how he—he he was kind of joking and kind of not joking, and he—but he, again, like this this fellow with the the, the scarred face. He saw that um, this—he'd lost his story. That his—he was really investing in this story, of like I'm this you know, this sort of tragic victim of this terrible disease, and you know I'm not long for this world. But it's all right. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can cope. You know, so don't worry about me. And he liked the drama. He liked the sort of the 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 victim uh, mentality something he could see something in him was feeding on that and then this this trip to the the clinic said no sorry mate <laughs> that's not what's happening and that but he had enough wisdom to see I'm sad because I you know I'm going to live <laughs> I'm sad because I lost my story and I was more invested in the story than in uh, than in my life so I thought well, this is a very wise person and that uh, so this um, Aspect of ego death and the not wanting to to lose that story that is a powerful part of our practice and living in a monastic community or as a lay practitioner either way you get to know I highly advise getting to know that energy of like I want to be something whether it's being a success or being a failure being the the, the monk who's always last or the, the monk who's always first or the you know, the the you know, the best nun or the worst nun or the the uh, the one who's always on time, or the one who's always kind of slightly off, slightly late, or <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> whatever we like to identify with, notice that and see that the the heart kind of investing in in that, because it's not always just positive things like like the the fellow with the um with the the facial injury, you know that that sometimes it's things that are we would call problems or difficulties or burdens. We are deeply attached to those and things that are not fixable are great because no one can take that away. It's like it's broken and it can't be fixed. Great, you know, it's a permanent problem, so it gives you an absolute excuse to identify with it, and so that uh, get to know that because it it takes a lot of strength to say no, 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 and to be familiar with how that dynamic works. But the the freedom that comes from uh being aware of it and not being addicted. <laughs> getting off the drug, as it were, getting off the Baba Tanha drug. That's uh, like like getting off tobacco or heroin or sugar or caffeine or whatever, then it uh, there's a great freedom in that. It's like, oh, don't have to have this drug to make me happy. You don't have to be having this um this continual shot of of uh, affirmation. So essentially it's to do with being at ease with undefined existence not being anything it doesn't mean wanting to be nothing but that sense of isness not being anything Um, even though it doesn't sound like much pun intended (laughs) it that that is an extraordinarily uh, important quality so continue a little bit more Trusting yourself with just awareness is a natural state of bliss. But you have to give up trying to describe it, or putting it into terms. When we talk about annihilation, that has a sense of dead emptiness about it, a kind of vacuous, sanitized nothingness, like an unconscious forgetting. But recognize that the Buddha was pointing to an ultimate reality which has a fullness. That's about the best you can do with words. That ultimate reality is realizable for each one of us through awareness at this moment. In order to recognize it, however, you need to let go of everything. That's why if you try to figure it out, you find you can't. You have to trust and be patient and be able to endure the emotional reactions that you have when you let go, because your ego starts resisting. It gets panicky. I always find it helpful to think that I can endure the physical side of life. The praise or blame, success or failure, good health and bad health. There are people who have chronic pain and horrible physical problems, and I'm amazed at how they endure it. One woman I know always looks bright and radiant, yet she goes through terrible pain all the time, and this isn't something that lasts for a few moments. She doesn't want to take painkillers and spend her life doped up on morphine or whatever, because she knows she can endure it. She's tuned in to the present and doesn't create the aversion, fear and resentment around the physical pain she experiences. Loss of loved ones is also endurable. All these things are part of our human experience and we can bear them. We can bear the loss of fortune. We can endure humiliation and failure. These are all endurable experiences we might have. Enduring fame and wealth is also something many people cannot take. They get corrupted and lost in it. Right now, just ask yourself, the deathless is what? Just ask that question of yourself. It can't be merely an abstract idea. If we see the deathless as merely a Buddhist theory, then it's meaningless, really. But if it's more than that, then it is now. It isn't something lacking at this moment. What is it, then, right now? Trust your intuition rather than your thoughts and views about it. Be patient with the way you're thinking or feeling, but just ask that question. Then these things drop away. What remains is non-self, the selfless state of bliss, peacefulness. In Thailand, they chant a reflection on impermanence when somebody dies. Aniccavata sankhara upadavaya dammino te sang tesang all conditions are impermanent, they arise and pass away. And when they pass away, there is peace. Anicca means impermanence. All conditioned phenomena, all conditions are impermanent. The body, the mental states and feelings arise and pass away. That is the nature of condition, the conditioned realm, the sense realm, the thinking realm, and the emotional realm. And when they pass away, there is peace, ultimate happiness, bliss. In Buddhist terms, this is a beautiful reflection about death being nothing to be frightened of. You can begin to recognize this as you experience death whilst still a conscious living entity. As you trust in your awareness, you will start dying. In this awareness, you'll find that when you let go of your ego, it's like putting down a burden. Carrying the ego is like carrying the world on your back. It's heavy and burdensome. And when you let it go, it's a relief. Unless your sole identity is as this person here, then it can be frightening. Who am I if I'm not this person? Emotionally, I don't know who I am anymore. But with this refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, I don't need to know who I am anymore. It isn't important who I am. Instead, there's a knowing. But not claiming the knowing in any kind of personal way. Emotionally, this is how I experience it, I am personally conditioned for extremities. I like extreme things. My nature is always to go towards adventure, excitement, interesting relationships and interesting books. And I used to fast and put myself through a lot because you can get some interesting mental states that way. But Ajahn Chah was always pointing to the ordinariness of life. Certainly the monastic life in the forest monastery in Thailand was ordinary. It was so ordinary, I found, it was boring. That's why I had to go to the extremes of asceticism to get the highs I was emotionally conditioned for. But after a while I got tired of beating myself up and starving myself. It didn't work anymore. Then I began to understand better. Because of my liking for extremity, there was a tendency to resist the boredom and restlessness. Emotionally resist it, which is quite a powerful thing. So I really needed to trust in the awareness. I therefore kept affirming this refuge in awareness so that I could be more aware of the subtleties of habit. If you want to experience death before you die, then this is the way to do it. The emotional side of life can be so alive, powerful and strong, your sense of vitality and self so connected to it, that when that starts dying, there can be a real fear of loss, maybe a resistance to it. It is like dying. Notice that when some people get old and their faculties diminish, when the life force gets less and less, they struggle against it, maybe resent it. Other people just find it a relief. Oh, I don't have to be a scintillating personality anymore. I can just be a boring old man. (sighs) The point is, death is the end of something that began. It just means the end. The word death conveys a sense of physical death. Yet you're experiencing death all the time without recognizing it. There's always an ending to something. Things are always changing. If you seek an interesting, exciting life and find things to be interested in, you'll notice that sometimes you reach a high, gets to the point where you can't go any higher, you reach a peak, and then it changes and starts getting boring, starts becoming uninteresting. Then you look for something else, but without noticing the cycle, without realizing that as soon as something reaches its peak, you start to lose interest in it and start looking for something else to inspire and uplift you. This running around this samsara, this constant search for the next interesting event or fascinating experience or meaningful relationship or whatever, is always related to the fact that the present experience no longer has that romantic, exciting quality. According to the Dhamma, however, the downhill stage has seemed to be the important part. So, uh, in, in respect to this, um, Lumpoi used to, in his, in his, uh, before the temple was built, Lumpur used to live in a couple of rooms at the end of the old Dhamma Halls, the old school gymnasium. uh, uh, Lumpur had a couple of rooms at the end there. And uh, he had this picture, and it was of an old guy with a white moustache sitting by a window watching the rain with a a mug of coffee in his hand. And so Lumpur said, Yeah, this is my my icon. I want us to be an old man with a cup of coffee looking at the rain. That's all. Nothing special, nothing glamorous, nothing exciting, no kind of glorious Buddha with a rainbow halo all around, just an old bloke with a moustache and a cup of coffee watching the rain. And, uh, so that was that stuck, that was in his cootie for years and years and years. And, uh, but of course, someone man- managed to make it exciting. They found the artist who painted the painting and they introduced the artist to Lumpur. And so, so, so it turned into something fascinating and exciting. <laughs> But uh, the idea was the principle was just like uh, how wonderful it be an old kind of overweight lumpy old bloke with a cup of coffee looking at the rain. That's all pigeon on the roof. That's it. Just a rainy day. Nothing special. So uh, I'll leave it there for today. That's the end of that talk. <laughs> So tomorrow is the full moon day, uh, so there won't be the reading for a couple of days. Um, what's today? Today is Tuesday, so they'll begin again on uh, Friday. That's the plan anyway, if we're all still alive. Have been hit by a meteorite or swallowed up by the English Channel.